It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. So today, I want to just touch base on one of those ideas that I've had floating around in my head. And we've probably talked about it a million times. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm kind of partial to unusual aquatic habitats. I'm sort of obsessed with weird environmental niches that um, we may have not only overlooked, but perhaps not even considered before. And perhaps one of the most, you know, simple, easy to overlook ideas is the idea of a mud hole. You heard me, a mud hole. Yeah, on the surface, this sounds easy and just like a breathing jar or something. Throw some peat moss on the bottom, add your Achilles, yeah, mud hole or whatever. No, no, next, you know, no, no. Fellman, you just described a breeding jar for Achilles. No, nope, 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 nope. Gonna get your way, gonna get your way from that thinking. Can't let you think it that through. I'm thinking more of a, you know, almost like a paludarium type setup or something. Or, oh, that uh, that urban agapo kind of idea uh, that we always talk about. Um, something set up with uh, perhaps with a terrestrial component. You'd probably set it up not unlike a terrarium for reptiles, somewhat barren with patches of maybe terrestrial vegetation here and there, and a substrate really consisting of a mix of peat or mud or fine sand, sediments, that kind of stuff. The emphasis is on creating the overall look, um, you know, and then the utility of function, uh, which is unusual for me because I'm usually talking about function. So at least initially, you'd, you'd put some emphasis on the appearance, right? And can you tell I'm going stream of consciousness here as I'm thinking this as I go? It's not for temporary breeding. It would actually be a permanent killifish setup. So you want to make it look interesting, of course, uh, and it would be shallow water, probably not exceeding, you know, maybe six or eight inches at the most. It's about 15 and a quarter to uh, 20 point, what, 20.5, something like that centimeters. Forgive me if my metric calculations are wrong. Uh, circulation? No, you'd have no circulation. Filtration? Mm-mm, not likely. You'd be relegated to small water changes with a plastic cup a couple of times a week or more. Even that is not 100% accurate to the biotope because most of the time it's just water that evaporates, but infinitely more realistic than what a lot of us have done before. So you'll have dark, likely acetic water, turbid, a small population of fishes, and the challenge of maintaining a bioload in a filterless mud hole. (laughs) Great, stagnant water, you know, stagnant water in my my living room. Great fucking idea, Fellman, right on. (laughs) Obviously, the starting point for replicating a mud hole in an aquarium is, well, mud. Well, at least the stuff you'd use to create the bottom. Now, for some time, I've been really intrigued about the terrestrial and other soils that hobbyists who keep dirted planted aquariums have used for years to facilitate, you know, this amazing plant growth. However, I'm not talking about using them for growing plants. I'm talking about using these materials for the primary substrate in the natural botanical-focused aquarium in which plants may or may not even play a role. You've heard me talk about this stuff before. Now, sure, there's considerations like an influx of a lot of nutrient-laden materials into the aquarium, not as important if you're growing plants, of course, uh, and the sheer messiness of soils, clays, and silt, which have created some consternation among those of us who, you know, who use them. 
Now, surely these materials are easily disturbed and can create some rather turbid conditions in the tank as they settle or when the fishes stir them up. So right from the start, you have a pretty good idea why this practice isn't exactly taking the aquarium world by storm, right? I mean, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> I've heard about concerns over gases and stuff being trapped under the soil substrate, which is likely more of a concern when you're employing a cap of sand or other material on top of the substrates that, that we're talking about here. And, you know, then it's released uh, into the tank during maintenance or other activities. Now, in my experiments, I've not experienced this. And again, I'm not talking about tremendous depths of sand. And I don't use a sand cap on top of my dirt. Uh, rather, I tend to mix in bits of crushed leaves, botanicals, and twigs, uh, which seems to not only keep the materials together, but enhances the natural random look. I gradually saturate and then flood these tanks, as sort of analog to what happens in nature during the periods of inundation in the forests. And I'm sure that I'll get a dozen emails from hobbyists telling me that it's an irresponsible and dangerous idea to utilize this approach to, you know, sub, to substrate in a fish-focused tank. But in almost seven years of personal experimentation with these types of mixes and about to launch them commercially, I've never had any issues whatsoever other than the aforementioned cloudiness when the substrate is disturbed. In fact, after a few months, even when the substrate is disturbed in one of these tanks, the cloudiness tends even not to occur. It just settles out really quickly. Based on my personal experience, I believe the longer this stuff is down, the more likely it is to stay down. Now, does this mean everybody should ditch, you know, every bag of commercially, carefully manufactured commercial sand and just start throwing, you know, dirt and silt into their display aquariums? Of course not. However, I think it's worth experimenting with. And it's important to look at our long-held opinions about what our aquarium substrate should be and what their role is in the aquarium. We've long offered a variety of materials, which we've rather generically called substrate additives, stuff you can mix in with conventional sand soils or as a primary substrate in experimental systems like uh, the, the coconut-based core material that we call fundu tropical or the much finer substratofino, which is a very fine cocoa core type material. And for the purposes over the years, we've used these as an alternative to peat and stuff, but it remains a pretty good seller for us too. So I think you'll find interesting uses for this in fish breeding or, or replicating, you know, killifish type in, you know, temporal environments. Commercial, you know, considerations aside here, I think that we should look at substrates in our aquarium as more than just the bottom or a place to, you know, put rocks and plants, but rather as a dynamic living integral component of a balanced ecosystem. A place to culture supplemental food organisms, facilitate reproduction of fishes, which of course I'm talking about annual killifishes here, and to impact the chemical composition of the water. Now, it would be great to apply as much emphasis on substrate in this vein as we do to other components of the aquarium. It's about mental shifts, rethinking the hows and whys of what we've done for so long. You always come back to mental shifts in this type of aquarium keeping, don't you? A substrate can and should be way more than gravel or plain old sand. And if we have our say in the matter, it certainly will be. And of course, if we dip back to nature for some inspiration, as we should, there's an amazing amount of ideas to take away. Muddy habitats are usually associated with more ephemeral, temporary habitats, known to ecologists as vernal pools. Now, vernal pools are generally found on plains or grasslands, and they're typically small bodies of water, often just a few meters wide. The origin of the name vernal, interestingly enough, refers to the spring season. And this makes a lot of sense because most of these ephemeral habitats are at their maximum water depth during the spring. Vernal pools are typically found in areas comprised, comprised of various uh, soil types that complain, contain clays, sediments, and silts. And they can develop into what geologists call hydric soils, which are defined as soils that formed under conditions of saturation, flooding, or ponding long enough to uh, allow anaerobic conditions in the upper part of their, uh, their layering. That's kind of interesting. A unique part of the vernal pools is that essentially 
what is known as an impermeable layer of substrate called the clay pan. These substrates are hugely important to the formation of these habitats as the clay soils bind so closely together that they become impermeable to water. That's kind of interesting, right? So when it rains, the water percolates until it reaches the clay pan and just sits there and fills up with decaying plant material, looser soils, and water, of course. So yeah, the substrate is of critical importance to the aquatic life forms which reside in these pools. So let's go back to talking Achilles for just a second. One in the study that I stumbled upon of the much-loved African species Nothobranchius indicated that these soils are the primary driver of habitat suitability for these fishes, and that the eggs can only survive the embryonic period and develop in specific soil types containing alkaline clay materials or minerals known as smectites, which create the proper soil conditions for this indesicated pool substrates. Okay, it starts making sense here, right? So the resulting mud-rich substrate in these pools has a low degree of permeability, which enables water to remain in a given vernal pool even after the surrounding water table may have receded. And of course, a lot of decaying materials like the plants and leaf litter and so forth is present in the water, which should impact the pH and the characteristics of the aquatic habitat. Interestingly, it's known by ecologists that the water may stay alkaline despite all of this stuff because of the buffering capacity of the alkaline clay present in the sediments. That's like interesting stuff too to me. And literally to cap it off, if this impermeable layer were not present, the vernal pools would desiccate too rapidly to permit the early phases of embryonic development in Nothobranchius eggs to occur. Yet these, these fishes, as interesting and, and uh, temperamental as they may be, are tied really intimately to their environment. So the, the, the whole concept of embryonic diapause, which is a form of prolonged yet reversible developmental arrest, almost like a suspended animation, is pretty well known to scientists and to lovers of annual killifishes. The occurrence and length of time of diapause varies from species to species, yet it's considered by scientists to be an evolutionary adaptation and an ecological trait in various populations of nothos tied directly into the characteristics of the ephemeral habitats from which they reside. So diapause assures species survival by enabling the annual life cycle of these fishes to be completed and can even be affected by the presence of adult fishes in the habitat. So in other words, it's not a good idea to hatch if there's a lot of potential predators around, right? So it's an amazing adaptation. Since this embryonic process of, of most of the Nothobranchias is a relatively long period of their lives, and in some species the longest you know, phase of their life, factors which impact embryonic development are really important. So a temporary pool over a muddy, leaf-strewn substrate can be a fascinating home display. If you ask me, how can we not be tantalized by this kind of an idea? It's really interesting. There's a lot going on there. And we could replicate this habitat quite easily in our aquariums. If you've been in the hobby long enough, you start noticing how things truly evolve over the years and how we easily get comfortable doing stuff that, less than a decade before, was considered risky, non-sustainable, or downright dangerous, or even stupid, as I've been told many times. I think... So much of it starts with making mental shifts and appreciating the challenges associated with doing stuff that's slightly different than what we've done in the past. In other words, simply trying. It seems like there's a certain audacity to doing stuff that fundamentally differently than we have done it in the past. Call it what you will, but I think it's that simple. Mindset shifts are beautiful things because they get us out of our comfort zone and compel us to look where we were, where we are, how we got there, and where we're going next. And sometimes it starts with going back to something as simple as playing in the mud. I hope at least I've perked your idea, your interest in this idea and maybe, you know, gotten you off the, the, the shelf if you're thinking some other equally wacky, unconventional idea, because that's how real change starts in the hobby. And right now the hobby needs some more real change. And it could always start with a little mud, like I said. Maybe you've got something even crazier out there brewing in, the, in your fish room. 
but you got to start, you got to do it, you got to share. And we're here for you. We're here to help you. We're here to inspire you. We're here to be inspired by you. Stay bold, stay creative, stay innovative, stay challenged, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.